Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and I have a familiar voice on here today, a returning guest, and that's Scott. Hey, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm wearing out my welcome because there are definitely <laughs> people like David. Like, I'm oh, I jealous know. of David. It's just like, <laughs> he gets really good movies, too. So well, in like, the last oh. time he messaged me, he was like, you know, um, his wife's having a baby, Kelly. She's been on the podcast, too. And he was like, you know, she's about to have the baby. I'm going to be so busy. I mean, is there any way, you know, one more? I was like, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Gattaca was a great episode. That's all yeah, I have to say. He, I, I know. I, I like talking to David because, and I've told him before, he, he has, like, the gift of, like, talking. You know, he can go, he can, like, explain himself really well. And, you know, I think it's great he has a podcast now. And so I'm like, yeah, of course. He's always welcome back. And speaking of that, I feel like that's another reason why I always like having you on here. And also because, you know, as I've told you many times, your podcast definitely uh, inspired me. So... So really glad Aww. to have you back. Oh shucks. <laughs> and you, uh, you have a lot of experience with podcasting because uh, I know how uh, Tim always rags on you that you like to get around. So I, I, it's really <laughs> Brent. Brent's the one who oh, really gets on to me for getting around. But I'm like, huh? Well, people just want me on their shows. What can I say? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Exactly. You're in high demand. Well, speaking of that, what movie are we talking about today? Oh, we are talking about the 2003 <laughs> The Singing Detective. Okay. A movie that nobody has heard of, except nope. for apparently Samantha in the Facebook group, who was like, <laughs> when I posted it on the Facebook group that we were talking, that I was watching this movie for the podcast, she was like, I love that Robert Downey Jr. performance. I'm, and I just shot up my arms like, someone else has seen this. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Well, you are in good company in that group. I mean... I would venture to guess that a lot of people in that group have seen a lot of obscure movies. So, yeah, apparently I'm Samantha and I we're, we're like the only two on this one. <laughs> well, I have to admit I had not heard of this film, um, and I was curious. I was like, "What is Scott getting me into?" Um, do you want to talk a little bit about I think you're why still you asking that this? question? <laughs> we'll we'll answer that today. <laughs> but uh, do you want to talk a little bit about why you picked this film and um, uh, when you first saw it, etc.? Okay. Uh, well, one, why did I pick this film? I just felt like I needed to go a little outside the box. Uh, I mean, I've done a Batman movie, I've done a Bond movie. And to be honest, I just wanted to do two things. I wanted more people to find out about this movie that like no one's heard of because I really do love this movie. Uh, but then also I just thought it would add a little bit of variety even to your podcast. Cause like I said, I'm doing it for you. Yeah. I appreciate it, that. I'm doing it for your <laughs> show, but no, it's just the idea of, I really want people to find out about this little 
in my opinion, a little hidden gem, especially if you like Robert Downey Jr. It's an incredible movie for him. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to kind of throw that out there because I don't this was kind of like my first like people talk about like these independent movies that grab their attention. And this was the first one that was really like I was like all in like I I sought out. Like I knew this was an independent movie. I knew this movie did not show it. It was only in limited release. So it was like this was the first time that I like went on the hunt for a movie. Oh, and okay. So this this is like my first of that. When I think of specifically Robert Downey Jr. in a movie that was like mixed received um, and uh, independent, I think of Less Than Zero, and I feel like that's not a perfect movie, but. I appreciate his performance in it, and I like the setting of that movie, and so... I've actually never seen that. Really? I, I, yeah. Now, that's based on uh, a, a, a Brett Ellison novel, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, yes. The same guy it, who wrote American Psycho. Mm -hmm. It's pretty different from the novel. Okay. Um, it's, it's a little more toned down, which may surprise you after you see it, but I thought it was like one of those movies where, you know, it's like... I think, uh, I'm trying to remember when that movie came out, but it's set in the 80s. I don't know if it came out in the 80s. Let me look it up. But um, what's unique about it to me is that it really feels like the 80s in a, in a way that's like, I oh yeah, it, was, it came out in the 80s and it's in the 80s. Okay, 87. And I guess because it is truly in the 80s, it feels a little more authentic while still having that, I don't know, like how to explain it, that like new wave aesthetic Mm -hmm. I know what you're um, talking about. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's a lot of like dark colors. It's a different side of the 80s than we get to see a lot. Usually you see like a really cartoonish, poppy version of the 80s, and this is more a little this darker. Is the, party this is the anti John Hughes 80s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, perfect. So I, I still recommend it. I mean, it's not, like I said, it's not an amazing movie. It's not as good as American Psycho, but there's something there, and I think Robert Downey Jr. is really good in it. And he's playing an addict, which, I mean, he was. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, little, little close to home there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess we'll kind of dive into that with this movie even a little bit from what I read. But um, so anyway, why don't I from here, like I said before, I've never seen this movie until a couple days ago. So I don't have an exciting story about it. But <laughs> uh, this this one actually beats my Casino Royale story. Yeah. For... Oh, really? Oh, okay. Do tell. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I did see this in theaters. Whoa. I had to drive from Birmingham to Atlanta to see this movie. I had I found the one th this movie theater on like the north side of the 275 bypass was like the only movie like the closest movie theater to me that was showing this movie in, you know, October, November of 2003 when this thing finally got released. I had been hyped up for this movie. I had seen a trailer on uh, on YouTube that caught my attention. I found the BBC miniseries that it's adapted from, and I had bought that at Barnes and Noble, and I had watched that. Wow! So I was like, I was like in total hype mode. I called the movie theater uh, just to make sure that it was on their schedule, because you know, kind of like Thursday, Friday movie times sort of change, and they drop mm -hmm. movies. So I called the movie theater to make sure that it was still going to be there. So it was, I was, in, it was my senior year of college. I got out of class at like two o'clock in the afternoon. I jumped in my car by myself because the friend who was going to go with me, his girlfriend kind of said, uh-uh, you ain't going. You're staying with me. And so I just went, <laughs> all righty then. How long so of I a got, drive I, is that again? 
that's about a two hour, 45 minute drive. Dude, I really take for granted the situation that we have up here with movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you do. I'm just, I'm just like, saying. These stories like blow my mind, just so you know, because like here, in, at, at least in Dallas, like growing up with, uh, you know, we've got the Granada, we've got um, the Inwood Theater, we've got, um, you know, the Angelica, like all, I, I don't ever go anywhere, you know, yeah. <laughs> outside of 20 or 30 minutes, so. Oh, well, even, well it's even getting, in high school. Oh, it's gotten better since then. Like the main movie chains show these movies more often now. But back and in you have like stadium early... seating. Yes. Yes, <laughs> <Finally>. exactly. <laughs> so I drove to Atlanta. I wow. went to the ticket booth because I got there like two or three hours early just because I wanted to avoid Atlanta traffic. Uh, and yeah. I can I can get behind that. Oh, yeah. And so I went to go buy the ticket. And as I'm buying the ticket, the guy looks at me and goes, are you the kid from Birmingham who called earlier this week? Like, apparently, <laughs> my phone call had, like, spread like wildfire. Like, there's somebody coming from Birmingham to see this movie. And the manager actually gave me a free large popcorn and then offered that after I saw the movie, if I didn't like it, I could go to any other movie in the theater for free. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> because... He, I don't think he realized that I knew what I was getting myself into. So he just thought, man, you drove a long way for a weird movie. If you don't like it, please feel free to go see any other movie we're showing. That's and really I, nice. It was extremely nice. And then I drove back from Atlanta that night. It, and then two months later, it finally came to Alabama about an hour away in Montgomery. And then the guy who I was going to take to go see it the first time – he was free, and so we drove down to Montgomery on a Sunday night and saw it again, like, in January of 2004. Wow. So, so uh, there was a lot of road trips to see this movie. Wow, okay. And so what initially got you so hyped up to see it? Uh, it was – because this is such a genre-bending movie, it's like everything that I love in a movie if you threw it in a blender and had one movie. It's oh, okay. got – it's got the musical. I can see that. It's got the musical aspect. It's got the film noir. It has a what I didn't quite realize how dark the comedy was going to be, but really you just take that 50s rock and roll music and then you throw it together with a film like some sort of weird film noir with a writer who's imagining the book like back in the 90s when sitcoms would do that thing where someone would fall asleep and suddenly everyone in the cast was like in some sort of film noir dream i think like family matters did it or step by step did it like whenever a show did that those were always some of my favorite episodes as a kid because i love the film noir detective story and so this thing was just like it was just calling to me like this is a concept that I'm just going to love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things I walked away with from my viewing of this movie was that there's a lot of different, pretty ambitious things going on in it. Um, so even if, you know, at the end of the day, I told you privately that I wasn't sure how I felt about the execution of it, I appreciated the attempt, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like well, I said, I'm, this isn't a movie that I get my I don't I don't get my feelings hurt if someone doesn't like it because I'm going <laughs> I'm going in with open eyes about yeah this is not for everybody. <laughs> well, with on that note, let me uh, go ahead and read the synopsis really quick. It's extremely short. 
because I feel like there's so much that happens in the movie. We'll dive into that more as we go along. But basically, it's one line. Here we go. From his hospital bed, a writer suffering from a skin disease hallucinates musical numbers and paranoid plots. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and we can dive more in from there. Let's uh, let's do a couple quick facts really quick, though, before we go into it. Um, the, the main one that I had was that at one point, David Cronenberg was in line to direct the film with Al Pacino as the lead. And gotta say, I could really, really see that. <laughs> oh, yeah. There was also uh, Robert Altman was going to direct it at one point with Dustin Hoffman in the lead. Oh, wow. I could yeah. see that, too. I could see that, too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I, I also read that the opening song was chosen by the director, Keith Gordon, because he liked it so much in Christine, the movie that came out in 83 in which he starred. Um, yeah, I think they're talking about Harlem Nocturne. That, oh, really? Uh, yeah, okay. because uh, I was trying all, to remember like which song. Yeah, it's the boom. It's the one with the bass guitar. You know, da 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 da. It's the one that's got the saxophone. It sounds like that sort of cliche film noir music you'd hear. Like that. That's what he picked out. Because actually, all the actual songs that are a uh, little thing we'll talk about the, the fact that all the songs are lip synced in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, all those were actually picked out by the writer and were included in the script. Like, oh, so each okay. song had been specifically chosen by the writer for, and placed in the in the screenplay. Okay, okay. That is really interesting. Well, did you have any other uh, quick facts before we talk about the director and the actors and stuff? Uh, yes. Uh, well, I kind of already mentioned it. This movie is adapted from a BBC miniseries that... Mm -hmm. uh, came out in 1986 the writer of the miniseries wrote the screenplay himself oh okay i was curious about that i didn't dive into i saw that it had been um a bbc miniseries but which i almost kind of i wondered you said you saw the miniseries did you feel like i kind of felt like there was so much going on in this movie it it almost seems like it would be easier if it were spread out into a miniseries actually i I enjoy the movie more. I, I like oh, how the movie okay. gets to the the miniseries is like seven hours. I oh. like how <laughs> I like how this movie kind of gets to the point. Mm, uh, okay. But oh, a little side note: the miniseries stars Michael Gambone, also known as Dumbledore. He plays oh. the writer detective. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> that's cool. Uh, yeah the 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 screenplay was actually written in 1992, two years before the author Dennis Potter died. So actually. All the reference—they didn't change any of the references in the movie. The oh, funny really? thing was, was that they referenced Bush and Baghdad. Yeah, that was George H. W. Bush. But when it came out in two thousand three, everyone thought it was George W. Bush. So all those references are all nineties references, and oh, they didn't—they okay. didn't change a word in the script. Oh wow! Uh, so it—it's amazing how much it still worked coming out, you know, ten years later. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That I did not notice that. Uh, so, wow. <laughs> That's really interesting, too. Uh, the only other major fact I would bring up right now and the rest of it we can get to when we talk about the movie is that uh -huh. uh, the skin condition that the protagonist suffers from is called serratic anthropathy, which is basically like head to toe psoriasis and arthritis throughout mm -hmm. your entire body. Dennis Potter had that skin condition. Yeah, that... I read that. I was like, because halfway through the movie at first, because uh, uh, my husband Nick was watching it with me, 
you know, like, I hadn't really read much about the movie before I started watching it. I, I don't like to because sometimes it affects too much. You know, it's like I'm thinking too much about facts about the movie instead of watching it. But, uh, you know, he, he looks, uh, Robert Downey Jr. looks like he was like a burn victim almost. And, yeah. um, you know, at one point they talk about his skin condition and, and my husband was like, can it really be that bad? And I was like, yeah, only because I watched like a really big bummer documentary. I can't even remember what it's called, but it was like the only one I've ever regretted watching. It was about a woman that like adopted all these children that had special needs. And one of the children I think had this because they had this horrible, horrible skin condition where she had to like wrap him up all the time and Mm -hmm. then unwrap him and bathe him every day because his skin would get like infected. But that also was like extremely painful to take the bandages off and to give him a, like his whole life was just like pain pretty much. So I knew it was like at least possible. And then I read that he had it. I was like, geez, you know, Oh, yeah, because actually Robert Downey Jr., uh, the way his fists, his fingers like cl- are like clubbed, mm-hmm. he based that on watching interviews with Dennis Potter. Oh, like, that's so, so sad. he was he was mimicking he was mimicking the way Potter would hold his hands, because basically what this does is it melts your joints. Oh, the gosh. arthritis is that bad. And they actually get the skin condition closer to what it really is like than the BBC like the BBC miniseries toned it down Mm -hmm. this one was like no you get the lesions you get the warts that have to be lanced it's head to toe it is miserable yeah and so I think that was really important because so the writer is writing this character and the writer has that voice to know this is what it's really like to have this yeah to be this incapacitated yeah, and it's like it's it's good to have that background too because I think at first we were having trouble seeing the connection between his skin condition and the rest of the plot, which I mean they do explain later, but we we almost at first we were kind of making up a narrative in our mind of like, oh, there must have been an accident and you know what I mean? Like you you sort of think that's what's going on at first and then later you find out and so we were kind of like, well, why specifically a skin condition? But it it made a lot of sense when you learn about the author oh yeah so i think that was you know we, i think everything else i have it, it will fit neatly into us talking about the movie okay well uh i wanted to talk a little bit about the director then keith gordon uh he was a right he was a sorry an actor turned director um and it looks like after this movie though he mainly stuck with tv like he's done quite a few shows that i watch um, oh, what's he done? Like, I saw that he directed, like, an episode or two of Fargo, um, Better Call Saul, Homeland, Nurse Jackie. Oh, uh, he's... The Killing, which I really, really love. Oh, that. that's a good show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd like to go back and see, like, which specific ones he directed, but it, it looks like he doesn't have a ton of movies. He's mainly TV, which isn't bad, but it's just something I noticed. Okay, I, I honestly I had never known him except for the fact that he's really the the DVD of this movie has a director's commentary. Oh, okay. And he is really enjoyable to listen to. Like, oh, nice. You, this was a this was you could tell this was really kind of a passion project for him. He was a mm-hmm. big Dennis Potter fan, and it's really fun to listen to his stories. Um, I only got to listen to like half the director's commentary before recording tonight but oh, i've got no some notes that i guess he's got, but i've got some notes but he's he just comes across as a genuinely nice guy so oh, i'm glad oh, to know that good. he and i'm glad to know he's still working yeah yeah and so yeah i just that i noticed he was more in 
to TV, and I just kind of wondered if you had a connection or background with him, but um, you don't necessarily have to. It sounds like for you, it's mainly RDJ and just the the plot of this story. Yeah, yeah. exactly. All right. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about Robert Downey Jr., Dan Dark? Oh, I love me some Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> I really have. Um, I remember the first time movie I saw a movie with him, I think it was like Chances Are, like that reincarnation movie from the 80s. Oh, man, I don't um, think I've seen that. Oh, it's... I don't want to say anything else. I mean, okay. <laughs> just, just go watch it. It's called Chances Are. It, I think it was like my first movie I can remember seeing with Robert Downey Jr., like on like some beach vacation with, you know, when I was like in elementary school or something, oh, it was okay. not a movie an elementary school kids should have been watching, but it's one of those that you don't realize until you're watching it, that you're like, Ooh, I really shouldn't be watching this. Yeah, totally. Well, um, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So the funny thing about this movie was this was like his first movie after getting out of jail. Oh, really? Yeah. I kind of wondered, um, you know, a lot of times, I mean, well, everybody I think knows now that he, he really struggled with addiction and kind of had some dark years and sort of a resurgence in his career. I was wondering, you know, how soon after that this was. Uh, actually, uh, Mel Gibson uh, production company, like they're the ones who produce, I mean, they're the ones who made this movie. Right. Yeah, Mel, Gibbs, Mel Gibson sought out Robert Downey Jr. to do this movie kind of like a I want to give you I want to give you your first chance mm-hmm. like oh that's like, cool. no like he reached out to him here let me get let me get you working again and so he kind of reached out to him about playing this role and he was actually still on probation oh, wow. uh, when when this movie was being made so the original script was set in Chicago and they wanted to move it to L.A. anyway, but then they had to move it to L.A. because Robert Downey Jr. was on probation. He couldn't leave L.A. Oh, like gotcha. Too- so they so they just kind of made that one little adjustment in the script to say, yeah, RDJ can't go anywhere. This all has to be filmed in L.A. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm reading that uh, he was in rehab as recently as 2001. And yeah, and yeah, he emerged 2003. You're right. This is like his first foray into sober life i guess yeah and and interesting he loves to improv he's from that he's like a he's like a film actor mm-hmm. uh, which keith gordon talked about a lot with like with mel gibson and robin wright and rdj like he wasn't used to that he was used to actors who came from the theater who just loved to rehearse and mm-hmm. he was dealing with all these people who grew up in film acting who they're like no, we don't want to rehearse because it takes away the spontaneity of the performance. So apparently Robert Downey Jr. loves to improvise. And it was ah. actually a struggle for him in this movie to actually stick to the script. Yeah. He, it, because he loved to improvise. And, and Keith Gordon's like, no, you're not inter- you're not improvising with, with Dennis Potter. That just isn't happening. Gotcha. Yeah, they didn't want him to put like a different spin on it and just, you know, stray from what the story has there. It yeah, kind of exactly. seemed like he was improvising to me sometimes in the movie, though. It's just it's just his performance. Like he yeah. really he, he improvised every once in a while, but it was only after he kind of got into the groove of this is what dinner Dennis Potter's voice sounds like. Like so he could learn to improvise, uh, you know, and stay in the same style as the writer. Right. OK. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, do you want to go through each actor or would you rather like maybe uh, talk about the plot a little bit and then we can kind of. I think that's it because there's a lot of people in this movie. There's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what scene do you want to talk about first? Oh, um, 
I don't. The problem is, like, my favorite scene is like towards the end of the movie. Like, Uh-oh. I would totally be jumping <laughs> around in order. Um, I'm kind of curious though. What was, what was one of the first scenes that kind of like, did you have a reaction at the beginning of the movie? Like, what, what the hell am I watching? Or like, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Like, what was the one of the first scenes that just kind of made you start your wheels a turning as you were watching this movie? Well, I mean, I guess right away because he is already sort of off balance at the beginning of the movie. Um, And you're trying to figure out if he used to be a detective or a writer. Like, you know, there's a part of the movie where I I wasn't sure. Okay. You know, he starts talking about a book, but it's like, does he really have a book? Or is he forgetting that, you know, that he's really a detective? Like, I was a little confused at first as to what was going on. Um, yeah. And then, you know, and, and he's such an unreliable narrator because he's constantly hallucinating those dance numbers. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't know if there's like a specific moment. I would say pretty much right out the gate. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. A, a really cool thing. I, I love how when the movie opens, it opens in the noir world. Mm-hmm. Like like when the movie starts, you don't even get introduced to your narrator. You're already like in his head yeah. when it starts. And then you get Adrian Brody and John Polito. Like, they're the first two guys you meet. And this was right about the time that Adrian Brody won his Oscar for The Pianist. Oh, wow. So, uh, so like, they he hadn't won the Oscar yet. He'd already filmed The Pianist. And then this was, like, the next movie he filmed. So everyone was like, how did you get an Academy Award winner in this movie? <laughs> and, the, and Keith <laughs> Gordon was like, because he hadn't won it yet. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, when I saw him, I was like, wait, what? And uh, my husband was like, is that Adrian Brody? And I'm like, of course it is. Like, nobody else looks like that. <laughs> He's so but specific I, looking. But I love how when you first get introduced to the noir world, I'm not sure if you noticed this, but you notice how, like, it was very sparse on details. Like, there was yeah. a lot of black around it. Kind of reminded me of, like, a play. Yeah, almost. well, apparently... Well, apparently the director said the their concept was old 50s B-movies. Like, they weren't going for, like, the really expensive film noirs from the 40s. Mm-hmm. They were going – they were trying to model after the cheap ones from the 50s where sets looked like sets. Like, gotcha. they weren't trying to hide the fact that it was a set. And so Keith Gordon said their idea was this idea is not fully formed in Dan Dark's head. So we only see the few details that he's locked onto, and so everything else is in black because it's fuzzy in his head. So the oh, idea okay. of that when they're in the noir world, you're really getting a very subjective view of like what it's like to be looking inside Dark's head as this movie is playing in his mind. Okay. Yeah, and I wondered, you know, for a while what this I guess crime scene you know, how it connects to the rest of the movie and, and they return to it several times. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I I love that. That's another thing I love about the movie is the movie is the movie's a psychological drama about a about a detective writer. But then the movie is a mystery, but the mystery isn't the novel. The mystery is what's going on. In the, like, why is this guy the way he is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think. And so the repeated image of them dragging the the dead woman's body out of the river and that image keeps on popping up throughout the movie. And you're like, why am I still seeing this image over and over again? And then at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, that's why. Okay, 
Yeah, and there were some things about, I guess, Dark's personality that I was like, not sure how it was going to reconcile in my mind, but they, I think they wrap it up pretty good at the end. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think the, the you've basically got three stories going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. You've got Dark in the hospital. You've got the fantasy world that is his novel, The Singing Detective. And then you have his flashbacks to his childhood. Mm-hmm. And these three stories are just all interweaving to at some point you're trying to figure out how do all three of these stories fit together. Yeah. And I think that's why I love about the movie is that it just it makes you pay attention the whole time. Yeah. No, I can agree with that. Uh, so the so that whole first scene where he's like in the bed and you see all the skin condition and his doctors are around him. Mm hmm. That scene makes me so uncomfortable and <laughs> because you're looking at him and the doctors are all claustrophobic around him and it was done on purpose. It, it was supposed you were supposed to feel as uncomfortable as he was mm-hmm. because along with all the all the darkness and the noir world, I'm not sure if you noticed, but you notice how like overly bright the, all the hospital scenes were. Yeah, although I, I guess I kind of imagine hospitals to be that way or at least the ones that i've visited they seem like really bright (laughs) you know yeah so i guess i didn't notice that it was like a stylistic choice but i definitely noticed it yeah it was actually a stylistic because the idea was that in the noir world he can hide there so there's all this darkness he can hide and then in the hospital they overly lit it with lots of fluorescent lights because it's like this is the one place he can't hide everyone sees who he is and there's no escape, which is why the noir world is where he goes to escape. Mm-hmm. And he's sort so, of like uh, every interaction he has with people is pretty caustic. Oh, he doesn't want to get better. He doesn't want to see his wife. And, you know, it's like uh, I think we have this image of, of people in pain or really sick where, you know, we're like, oh, they're a fighter and oh, they're so brave and. I think we want them to react that way when they're sick, you know, but yeah. in reality, everybody deals with, uh, with pain and illness so differently. So I guess that's kind of like maybe a more honest look at it, or at least acknowledging that people have different reactions. Well, and, and it's tied directly into the seratic anthropathy because great stress does make the condition flare up. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like he because he has this anger and this misogyny and, and like like think of every negative personality trait a guy can have and it pour it into one person. And it's those very elements that cause him to have such a debilitating case of this disease because mm-hmm. his anger and his nastiness and his misogyny and everything is fueling the very disease that's keeping him locked away in the hospital. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and I knew that, uh, stress could cause flare ups, but do they also cause like the hallucinations or is that just like the medication he's on or. Well, interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up. It's like <laughs> you just served it up. Actually that very first musical number is a play on words because the first musical number is at the hop. Well, if you realize what the doctors are talking about, 
right before that musical number starts, it's about all the drugs they want to put him on to control it. So hop is a 50 slang word for drugs. So oh, okay. it's a play on on the if you actually hear Dan Dark, he says on the hop. And then he jumps into the song at the hop. So, yeah. So the idea is that that first musical number is like, is this drug infused experience of I am in this hospital. I am stressed out. I'm emotionally wasted. And these doctors are just trying to pump me onto every drug known to man, like stuff for the skin, antidepressants, antipsychotic. It's like. You, they're just listing off all of these drugs and then the musical number kicks in yeah. because it's it's a flare up from all the medication he's on. And so it's a little dig. You know, when I said that Dennis Potter picked every song that was used in the movie, it was for little plays like that where he uses at the hop in the scene where the doctor's talking about just shooting him up with as many drugs as possible. Mm, okay, that makes sense. I, I thought like... Anytime he was in the hospital and there was a musical number or it was sort of like sexual in nature, it really reminded me of, um, do you like that movie Across the Universe? I have actually never seen Across the Universe. What? Okay. I'm really shocked oh. you haven't seen that. But are you just like, are you not a Beatles fan? No, that's okay. the thing. I do like what the, the Beatles. What the heck? What's, what's stopping you? Okay. Well, there's a scene in that movie. It's not really like a spoiler or anything. I don't know if you've seen it before, but um, um, it's uh, to the song, uh, like, Love is a Loaded Gun. Okay. Uh, there's a, a scene where somebody's in the hospital, and um, there's, like, a whole musical number, and it's, like, very surreal, and it's, you know, obviously, you know, it just it just fits with what's happening. But um, Selma Hayek is, like, the sexy nurse that he sees, and... I don't know. You should see it, and maybe okay. it might remind you. No, it's not like exactly like this or anything, but it did remind me of like that scene a little bit. Okay. Well, since you brought up a nurse, I guess we can talk about <laughs> Katie Holmes now. Oh yeah, that was like a shock for me. I, you know, it's like, I guess just because I haven't seen her in such a long time. Um, and, yeah. And, and my thought seeing her in this movie was like, man, she really looked. I mean, she's very, she's pretty, but it's in a very like wholesome. I know that girl kind of way. And I guess I'd well, forgotten that about her because she's such a big star now. Yeah. Well, that was actually the exact reason they cast her. Yeah. I mean, was, she really looks like, again, pretty, but like, you know, she could work at the store down the street. It doesn't look, she doesn't look like, I, I guess, like uh, glamorous, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, the whole point was they wanted her to be like, their sort of avatar for innocence. Yeah, like, yeah. I definitely got that vibe. <laughs> yeah. Well, because, you know, that goes into what what is one of my favorite musical numbers in the movie, which is Sandman. Oh, yeah. Know? She seemed and, very natural in that song. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it was interesting because it's it's it is one of the scenes that is like almost unchanged from the BBC miniseries. Like there's a lot of changes that happen like when Dennis Potter adapted it, but that's one of those scenes that's like that, that scene transferred directly where he's has this pretty young nurse who's having to put this cream on him because the psoriasis is so drying out and cracking. Like he has to get um, uh, lubricated is, is the way. And it's him trying not to ejaculate while she's doing this. And so he escapes into that that Sandman, which is really interesting because 
it's supposed to be a this is that that idealized version of like 50s adolescent sexuality. You know, mm-hmm. you've got your girl on your arm in the in the little dress. You know, you're in the Cadillac making out in the car. And so that was supposed to be like this is that that is this is that sort of innocent sexuality that he never got to experience because of what happened in his childhood. Like this was something he never got to have. And so that's where his mind goes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't interpret it that way, but I yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, and this isn't me making this up. This is actually what No, the no, I believe you. <laughs> I'm curious, how did you interpret it then? Um I guess I just felt that it was just like you know, a quick joke of, uh, oh, cute nurse. You know, I didn't really look too far into it. And I guess maybe because I identify with the nurse because she's a girl, I was like, I would like immediately ask to be <laughs> moved to like a different patient. <laughs> That's all I could think. Because I'm like, I'm sure stuff happens in that situation, but I would be like, unacceptable. I need to be moved immediately. So I, yeah. it's hard for me to like, not see it from her perspective and so i think it makes it a little harder for me to like appreciate where he's coming from if that makes sense so right uh, that just being honest (laughs) oh no that's fine because i think the point is that that situation is terribly embarrassing for everyone involved yeah like you could even see dark even dan dark is like oh dear like like it it, it's 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 demeaning that that happened and then she has to and then she has to clean it up, and then you can see her reaction to it, and he just – he's humiliated by the whole situation. And so it's like everyone's humiliated. And so it's kind of that com- – it's sort of that uncomfortable dark humor that it, it, it works for me in this film. Gotcha. Okay. Uh <laughs> <laughs> There's no real smooth segue from that. <laughs> there really isn't, is there? <laughs> okay. I mean, I guess we could talk about like the other. I mean, after this part is basically where we meet Mel Gibson. Oh so, yeah. Who decidedly looks very un Mel Gibson like in this movie? Yeah, I didn't really recognize him right away. Uh, neither did the neither did the cast. Oh really? It it was Mel because Mel Gibson produced this movie his icon productions produced this movie uh so he basically cast himself as the psychiatrist in this movie Mm -hmm. and it was his decision to play it as he put it a balding 65 year old midwesterner yeah i mean he nailed it (laughs) so it was his idea to be an outsider because he Mm -hmm. thought there was no way dan dark is going to open up to anyone who is also not you know, an outsider or a, you know, to use the pejorative, a freak, you know, oh, okay. a, an, out, an outcast from society. So that was Mel Gibson's take was I need to be someone who's who is not, you know, a dreamboat himself because mm-hmm. there's no way Dark would trust anyone who was. Oh, OK, OK. I can see that. So when they did up the makeup, when Mel Gibson first walked on set, no one recognized him. Yeah, they, like seriously, it's very convincing. Yeah. Also, all of his scenes were shot in three to four days because he was prepping the Passion of the Christ. So oh, he was wow. having to fly. He was he was having to fly back between L.A. and Italy. Uh, so they wow. did all of his scenes in three to four days and just knocked them out because he had to go start production on the Passion of the Christ. Wow, that's pretty impressive. He must have really believed in the project to do that. <laughs> 
Yeah, he it, like I said, it, it was his production company that got the script. He yeah. was the one who brought Robert Downey Jr. on board. So it was kind of like a little passion, a little side passion project for his yeah, company. Yeah, I can see that. That's interesting. It kind of makes you wonder why, why specifically this plot, you know? Yeah, I I don't know. It, it seemed more like what I read was that there was an executive at the production company that got the script. Mm, okay. And uh, but like I said, I think it was he saw. I really do feel like he saw this as an opportunity for RDJ. Like yeah. this this is a way to get you back in the business. And that does happen a lot. Where you know, even if a movie is um, kind of under the radar, somebody's performance in it, you know, they can see that, and then it leads to more opportunities. So it probably did. Oh well, actually, uh, on the DVD case, you know how they had the little blurbs. Mm-hmm. Roger Roger Ebert apparently like adored Robert Downey Jr.'s performance in this movie. Yeah, I so, mean, I think it, you know if if the movie has you know any flaws or anything, it's definitely not a Robert Downey Jr. I mean, he does a, he does a great job the whole time. Oh yeah. So I l- some of my favorite scenes in this movie are between RDJ and Mel Gibson, like. Those therapy sessions, I think, are some of the most rich. Like, they're the ones that are really letting you in on what's the real story behind this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the scene at the end when he finally puts all the pieces together to realize yeah. what's psychologically wrong with him. I mean, the camera is just on RDJ, and you're just watching it, and it's just like, oh, amazing it's like one it's almost like one continuous take and Mm -hmm. he's just delivering this amazing monologue where he figures out why he is so screwed up yeah um you want to talk about robin wright because you kind of just talked about her in princess bride that's true we did and blade runner 2049 and 2049 (laughs) so yeah i was like surprised when i saw her face i was like oh you know, because they keep kind of building up the tension about, you know, do you want to see your wife? And he says he doesn't have one. And you're kind of like, you know, at first you're wondering if he is doing that consciously or subconsciously. And so then you finally get to see her and it doesn't go well. No, <laughs> and I think part of the mystery of the movie, of course, is wondering if she really isn't to be trusted. But at the same time, he's so unreliable and paranoid that... I don't know. You know, you're kind of it's a mystery in and of itself or, or, or another mystery in the film. But I mean, I think she does a great job like she always does. She uh, she looks great. <laughs> I was like, she's really dressed up to visit him at the hospital. <laughs> so well, she it is obviously LA. still cares. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you know, she looks good. Um, and I thought she did a good job. Yeah, actually, she got the role because apparently when everyone auditioned for the role of Nicola, the wife, they either played it totally like as a victim mm-hmm. of dark's abusiveness or they tried to top dark by being even angrier or nastier and apparently robin wright was the one who came in with the perspective of if he's going to be the angry chaos i'm going to be the calming influence in his life mm-hmm. yeah and it- plus i think it's to, to keep them the mystery in the movie i mean she has to be a little bit I guess, enigmatic in her delivery because it's like, I don't know, at least for me, I, I was wondering what the truth was. Well, yeah, because you also, I mean, the first time you in- get introduced to her is her playing the prostitute character in the film noir. Mm-hmm. So there's always this thing of when you when you realize that the people in the film noir 
are people from Dan Dark's real life, you start trying to make the parallels of, okay, I've seen them in the film noir. So who are they in real life? Or if this is who they are in real life, why did he cast them in his mind as this character in the film noir? Yeah. And I got pretty quickly that, you know, he had animosity towards her, but I wondered if it was valid or not. And I think that there's, you know, a lot of mystery in the movie as to, as to, you know, answer that question. And uh, I think it's better if she plays it kind of cool and calm and collected because then that, that also holds on to that mystery. And I still don't even think they answer it by the end of the movie. Like, I still really? don't... Re- I feel like they did, but I don't know. Maybe that, that was my reading into it. Well, what did you... Oh, well, I'm kind of curious. What what did you have to think? What, what was your... What was your interpretation? Because what I love about this movie, you can come away with five different people having five different opinions about this movie. Yeah. So what was your thought about their relationship I mean, I, I didn't and Dan? think it was good, but I never really got any real clues that she was cheating on him. But what we did get a lot of clues about were how he viewed his mother and his relationship with her and how um, he definitely felt she carried i mean you don't really see anything to disprove this until the very end but it seems like he really laid the blame on her um that she was a cheater and that you know she was um you know promiscuous and so i i guess i just assumed you know at first it was a question but towards the end it seemed like he was really projecting that onto her and so it's kind of like that thing where he didn't work out something with his mom and so relationships with women are sort of returning to that toxic relationship and trying to work it out. But even if the person is not guilty, he's always going to take it there because he doesn't have resolution. So to me, it seemed like in the end, there was like that number where he kind of confronts like the idea that she didn't actually do anything, but that he was sort of like imagining it. Because like every time you see her do something quote unquote like wrong it he wasn't actually there he's like picturing it right he's right he's writing the scene in his head right of oh yeah no I, and then I, no, he's I, so mean to everybody that it's like I, I just felt that it's about him and his internal pain he doesn't let anyone in on that so it's like I don't know it's hard for me to believe she was also using or doing anything to him it seemed to oh. be all him but you know I don't know maybe there's more no. ways to read it I know. Actually, the way you just described it is exactly how I think. I, I mean, I feel like what happened with his mom completely screwed him over, and he he take his very sort of negative reaction to his mother, then like doomed every possible interaction he ever had with another woman up to that point. Mm-hmm. It's like every every negative image he has about his mother becomes every woman in his life like every woman in his life is awful and promiscuous and lying and backstabbing well because that's what my mother was right at least least that's how i remember my mother exactly yeah and i felt like even those memories were a little unreliable but we i don't want to jump too far ahead well, I, I think at this by this point we'd already met his mother, played yeah. by the lovely Carla Guccino. Oh yeah, she's uh, beautiful. Uh, this is actually the first movie I ever saw her in. Oh really? Yeah, because it was the two years later that I saw her in Sin City, uh-huh. and then yeah, and then she's four so years familiar after, looking. 
I know. And then four years after that, she was in Watchmen. Mm-hmm. So it's like she's become one of those actors who I love to see mm-hmm. because I really do enjoy it. But this was the first movie I saw her in. Yeah, she plays that role so well, too. Oh, yeah, just like, you know, at some points, it's like, I, 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 you know, I'm very judgmental of her character, but then I get very sympathetic towards her character when you see how she, you know, where, where her path kind of takes her. Mm-hmm. And I love it because there's no black and white in this movie. It's all yeah. just, it's all just gray. Mm-hmm. Well, I felt that, you know, whenever he would remember, have these memories, um, I don't know. I noticed throughout the movie, I was like, uh, with his dad, and they address it like in the end. Is this jumping too far ahead? Or no? Oh, go ahead. Okay, we're we're okay. kind of on. We're okay. kind of addressing this part. Um, you know, my I guess in my opinion on it is definitely tainted by how I view the issue. I guess of like, like domestic violence or misogyny, things like that. But um, he purposefully sort of skips over. Uh, anything about his dad, right? Like, he says that he was waving, the, you know, at them goodbye, but you notice he never really, and that they they left, but he doesn't really mention, like, his dad following up with him or anything, and it isn't until the very end that he admits that he kind of, like, he, he tattles on his mom about um, the infidelity, and then that causes his father to be physically abusive to him and his mom. So it yes. kind of backfires, and, um, and then his, so for me personally, I feel that, uh, he puts all the blame on his mother, but in reality, uh, it all kind of comes back to his father and then also back to self-loathing because he, he feels that it's his fault that the rest of his life happened the way it did. And, and even what happened to his mother. Yeah. Then, Cause he blame he even says he, he even kind of says I murdered her. Like he, he, yeah. he in that for the last session, he's like, I killed her because I wanted to connect with my dad mm-hmm. because because his dad was a car mechanic. He was like a kid who loved to read and he was trying to connect with them. And like you said, it blew up in his face because mm-hmm. he thought by tattling on his mom would bring him and his dad closer together. Right. And I guess I feel that just personally on a higher level that somebody who is you know, obviously his dad was, uh, you know, and anybody would be really angry about infidelity, but the reaction is pretty violent towards him and his mom, which is like, what did he do? Um, I think when somebody is physically abusive like that, they have a tendency to be kind of manipulative too. So, you know, instilling this idea of shame and guilt on his son and I guess making the infidelity between him and his mom involve him when it really didn't even have to because he's just a child and it really, you know, it should only, in my opinion, be between them. And then you see that pattern repeated later. You know, he's kind of like, oh, she made these choices to go out with these men. But at the same time, I kind of feel like, I don't know, it's like she, she did keep dating guys that were abusive, but that's a cycle she's also stuck in. See, so I was me, also kind of curious about, was she dating them? Or... Oh, well, she was definitely also a prostitute, but there was a lot of, like, violent, like, there were guys that she, it seemed like she was also steadily dating, but they were also violent. Mm-hmm. And then he yeah. kept saying, like, he was telling her, like, oh, you don't have to do this. But it's like, yet he longed to get that relationship back with his dad who hit him. I mean, I, I just think they were both... I guess to me they were both more victims than 
than he saw them as. Like, he saw her as, like, you're an adult, so you should be able to make this decision. But I, I personally feel that somebody who is like his mother, um, they're the victim in my mind. So it's like, I, I, I guess I didn't see her that way. And I also saw her as, like, not having a lot of choices. Because he said that, that she tried to get a job. And I think it's just the time period. A woman who's a single mother isn't really an appealing date. And it's also hard for her to get a job in general. Just right. the way things were. So she's really left with no choice. And so she's just caught in this, like, cycle of just being abused and used and treated badly. But he really demonizes just her but I guess that's because he doesn't want to face his role in it, which, again, on a higher level, I don't think he actually has a role in any of it. It's not his fault. He was a child. But it's easier to demonize her and make her the bad guy than it is to face what the, what actually happened, I guess. Right. But, and I, but I feel like – but I also feel like that's what the – but I also saw the movie that way. Like yeah. he, he has to learn that, no, she's not the – she's not this – terrible avatar of awful womanhood that he kind of plays her up uh, as and, and and like by the end of the movie the whole point of him of his healing is to get over that yeah because then when he starts like really facing that that's when he gets better yes and when he lets go but yeah i think that personal guilt like him believing that he played a role in it you know you always hear kids say like when their parents get divorced they'll blame themselves or if something bad happens people blame themselves but you know, really, he was innocent to me, just a bystander. Um, but as a child, how do you reconcile that and explain that, you know? And I mean, I'm not going to lie. I think things that he was exposed to were pretty terrible, um, you know, on his mother's side. But I mean, you know, his dad, too. So I yeah, mean, the oh, whole yeah. thing was terrible. I mean, there's there's nothing um, there's nothing like uh stable or structured about the world he was living in even before the infidelity probably so that's just the world that they lived in that's the world he had to live in right yeah well and once again and this is why i love this movie is these kind of conversations <laughs> though see this movie just like generates conversations you're right yeah. he was in an awful situation to begin with and that just and, and those situations he became this awful man that he was, and it's about him getting over that. Yeah, and I mean, as a kid, you know, I think we tend to, your memories back then aren't super clear, so you're going to stick with the biggest memory, and if things get way worse after that, you're going to say, oh, everything before that was great, but was it? You know, and I think by the end of it, he's sort of able to come to terms with that, especially since his dad, like, never came back into the picture at all, right? It's well, not like see, he couldn't. Well, no. See, at the end, he gets back on the bus. So, you know, at, at the, you know, because he even says, I have a hard time distinguishing the bus that took uh, my mom and I to L.A. and then the bus that took me back. So oh. my so my interpretation is after his mom, spoiler alert, <laughs> commits yeah. su commit suicide, which is that image of the woman being dragged out of the river that you see throughout the entire movie. Yeah. You learn, oh, wait a minute, that's actually his mom. Right. Uh, he got back on the bus and he went back home to his dad because he had, because that was there's his. There's nowhere um, else to go. There's nowhere else to go. Which also brings in the characters of, you know, Adrian Brody and John Polito, which is also the. Okay, were they on the bus going to L.A.? Were they on the bus coming back from L.A.? It's, it's, it's those questions of who are these characters? 
I felt like, I guess I, in my mind, I, I thought it was like supposed to be a clue for us as the audience. I mean, it's pretty clear they're not real, but that they're going to sort of be like, um, I, I guess harbingers of what happened back then and characters that will try to pull him back into his past. Right. I mean, you know, well, especially when they actually kind of get a life of their own at the end. Yeah. And they kind of go off the page and they're like, who the hell are we? Yeah. What are we doing? <laughs> and that's where I thought was kind of funny towards the end of the movie. Like as he's getting better, it's like his psychosis is trying to pull him back. Like as he doesn't need this book anymore, as he doesn't need these characters anymore, the characters become more desperate. Yeah. About like if you forget us, what happens to us? And 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 it kind of I thought the scene of the two gangsters or or Fed or FBI agents or whatever they are, because even they don't know what they are, mm -hmm. you know, come and attack him in the hospital. It's like, what is our existence? What is our purpose? Who are we? Please tell make us fully formed characters instead of these, you know, these stock stereotypes that we are. Yeah, because this is not fair. And I, I, I and that was another one of those elements of the characters are assaulting the author. Yeah. And I thought it was just a really interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So which which is even more interesting when his own detective character who he plays mm -hmm. the singer, the singing, the, detective. the singing detective, <laughs> right, has to come and save himself. Yeah, I like that touch, too. I thought that was good. I kind of saw it going that way when they started going crazy. I, I did think like, oh, he's going to show up as himself. Like, I, I wasn't surprised by that. I, th I thought that was going to happen. But what did you think about the detective shooting him in the head? Um, I mean, it made sense to me. It was like, he's the problem. Yeah, I, I felt like it was the detective, like killing that hospital version of Dark was like finally putting to bed all of that guilt. I thought that it was a personification of the guilt and the resentment mm. and the anger. Like we're finally killing it. So he, because the next time we see him, he is completely like he's better. His skin's cleared up. He can move his hands. He's packing up. He's leaving the hospital. Mm -hmm. So I felt like that was a symbol of we have finally killed the the evil seed that is causing all of these psychological issues. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's like, uh, kind of reminds me of like that scene in fight club. I mean, it's a little different, but, um, you know, where Tyler Durden shoots himself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, little, little tidbit. Did you know that the song that plays over the end credits is Robert Downey Jr. Singing? No, but I believe it. It definitely sounded like him. Oh, yeah. Um, the the idea of for Dennis Potter was that all the lip syncing is because we are prisoners of the pop culture that we grew up with. Oh, so the, OK. So he actually wrote a trilogy. Uh, there's Pennies from Heaven, which was also adapted into a movie with Steve Martin, Burnett Peters. Oh, and, my gosh. Uh, That's so crazy. You're mentioning that movie. Anyway, go ahead. No, why is it crazy? I, I'm, okay, I'm so there used to be a podcast that I listened to that eventually, like, I was not crazy about anymore. It was uh, that one called The Canon. 
Okay. And um, the female host on there picked that movie as one of her favorite movies ever, and they talked about it for a whole episode um, back when I was listening to it. And I don't know why, but I thought of that. I thought of that movie when I thought of when we're when I was watching this. Well, so it's, it's the like same I knew you're gonna say that almost. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, it makes sense. They seem connected, but yeah. Yeah, same writer, same concept. Yeah. Uh, the the miniseries had Bob Hoskins as the oh. as the character that Steve Martin plays in the movie. Yeah, and she was the girl was making a, a really big case for why she loved it so much, and the the other host was like tearing it down vehemently. So, <laughs> so I mean, that episode kind of stuck with me. Well, I still haven't I, seen it. Oh yeah, it's. I prefer that's one where I prefer the miniseries to the movie. Oh really? Yeah, but this yeah, one it I didn't prefer- have a high rating. Um, no, the yeah. best part about it, it, it uh, this is a complete tangent, but the best part about it is um, YouTube, Christopher Walken, Pennies from Heaven. It, it, if you didn't already know that Christopher Walken was a dancer, he does a strip tease tap number to Cole Porter's Let's Misbehave in that movie. That is epic. <laughs> I believe it. I mean, I always think of that uh, um, Weapon of Choice music video he danced in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but the idea was, is that we are, we are prisoners of our own childhood pop culture. So Mm. the idea that you don't hear them singing the songs themselves is because they're not us. There are memories, there are childhood. So all the songs are lip synced because they're not us. There's just this impression that was put on us during our formative years that it's not really our voice. It's the voice of the cult of the culture that that we grew up with. Okay. That makes a lot more sense to me now. Cause I, I was wondering about that. Yeah. So the idea was when they wanted Robert Downey Jr. to sing the song at the end, they even cleared it with Dennis Potter's agent, even though Potter's been dead since 94. Uh, they went to his estate and said, are you okay with us doing this? And they were like, sure. Because the idea is that Dan Dark has reached an arc. Like he has now let go of that past mm-hmm. of, that, you know, the reason he was always writing these crappy detective stories is because he is stuck in that 50s childhood of his with those pulp novels and that music and everything. Mm-hmm. And now he's let it go and now he can become his own person. And so it was symbolized by Robert Downey Jr. actually singing the song that plays over the end credits. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I think that clears up some questions I had about it, actually. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of <laughs> curious because because this because this movie was not exactly your cup of tea. I'm kind of curious, like, what other questions did like at because I'm the one who suggested this, like, because I love this movie. Mm-hmm. But I'm just kind of was there anything else? Like, are you just like burning? Like, what the hell was that? And no, you, I didn't feel that way. I mean, I, I did have a lot of questions, and I didn't know if they were answered. Um, but I mean, a lot of the movies I like are pretty experimental. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't worried about it being like too weird or something. Okay. Yeah. I don't really. Cause it's, cause it's weird. It's yeah. weird. <laughs> oh, there's, a, you know, there's movies that I've watched, um, that I feel like never translate to anybody but me. So I, you know, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of uh, curious what your thoughts were, or, or maybe not your thoughts specifically, but what the film was trying to say about the situation with his mom, because I think that was probably the only part that maybe I was a little more sensitive to, 
you know, right. because I mean, I think that there's sort of like an old way of looking at what happened to her in sort of like a new way. And, you know, I, I think you've probably heard me say on other episodes, I, I guess one issue I have is when people say things like, oh, well, why didn't they just leave? Or why did they do this? Why didn't they do that? Instead of being angry at like the person that's hurting them, we often kind of blame the person that's being hurt. And so I was, I guess I was a little nervous about that in the movie, but I felt like they kind of cleared it up at the end. So I was like, oh, I'm glad that it's ending like this and not just ending with her being the bad guy, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 It, it, the whole point is, and I, and I felt like that's the whole point of the movie. Right. No, I agree. Yeah. She's not the bad guy. And he had to learn, like, his journey was learning that. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, and I mean, I don't, I'm not like afraid of that topic to where I don't want to see it at all or, or, you know, work through it. I think that's you know, that's healthy and that's good. So um, I think that was my like reservation going in, but I was happy with the, with the wrap up. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you pretty much answered a lot of them. I did wonder about the song choices about, um, about the lip syncing. Um, I'm trying to think of, any, you know, like I said, the stuff with his mom um, and even the wife. Um, and then, uh, I think, I think that's it. Yeah. I will say this. Um, when, if you ever feel like watching this movie again, which, you know, <laughs> not everyone feels like that, but if you go back and you, and you listen to the lyrics of the songs that got picked because they're all fifties rock songs, mm -hmm. they're all the, I call it the American graffiti soundtrack. Cause that's yeah. like, what I, that's what <laughs> I grew up on. But if you listen to the lyrics of the song and pay attention to the scene that they appear in you can see why the song was picked mm -hmm. because okay. uh, because what what Dennis Potter said, and it was actually his criticism of the uh, of the pennies from heaven movie was that he said this, he said, quote, the filmmakers did not understand it's supposed to be a homemade musical. Mm, like, OK, like some people might say, well, this movie kind of looks cheap or it like the sets look like sets and, and the and my point is, yes, they're supposed to because he's making this all up in his head. Yeah, that and makes so, sense. Yeah. So so the idea is that this is him making a musical with the songs from his childhood and this weird detective novel that he's written, mm -hmm. which. Spoiler alert, the detect the plot of the detective novel makes no sense. Right. Don't even try <laughs> to make the detective novel make sense. But I think it works because he's rewriting it in his head. And because he's not stable, the story doesn't work. He like the plot of the mystery novel falls apart because he's falling apart. Well, yeah. And then he like gets angry at his wife and says, like, what did you do with my script? And she's like, you got rid of it. And then he's back in paranoid mode. Did I really? Or is she making that up? And I don't know if they ever really answer it, but I guess I got the feeling because he had the other failed novels that he probably did get rid of it. Oh, no. I, I watched – I think if you watch that scene, he has that realization of uh, – like he actually does like believe her. Oh, OK. Like, OK. Yeah, I but, guess I guess I didn't catch it. But, you know, if I watched it again, it would probably be different knowing yeah. how it ends. Right. And and also that scene where he kind of starts to realize it is also the scene where the goon like the goons show up again. Gotcha, so it's like they're trying as, to pull him back in. Right. Exactly. Yeah. OK. That makes a lot of sense. I do what I can. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've, also watched, I've also watched this movie a lot since 2003. So I've had time to like. To like really process it and think about it. Well, I mean, exactly. you know, that that is what's what's good about having a movie that you really feel passionate about is is having that opportunity to go back and 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 you know learn more about it and then when people like me come at you with questions <laughs> you've got answers for them come at come at me bro come, yeah. at, come at me bro. <laughs> well like i said I, I did appreciate um all the different things they were trying to balance in this film so that that was something that i that i really liked about it and i think you know whenever you tackle something this big um it's not going to necessarily land with everybody but it doesn't have to it can just, like, exist as its own thing and not have to do that. And sometimes, like, the fact that it's not super popular makes you like it even more because then it really feels personal. Yeah, it feels like a little gem that's just, like, this is a movie that was just for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm okay with it. And, and, and I'm also I'm also a, um, a mature enough individual to go, I don't need other people to like this movie. I don't need other people to like this movie. I love it, and that's all that matters to me. And and that's and, and it's kind of nice. I'm sure. I mean, let's look at the Facebook group. I'm sure we all have a movie that, like, we could all admit none of you probably like this movie, but me. But that's yeah. fine because it's my movie. Yeah. No, you're inspiring me. Like, there's there's a movie I've wanted to do for a while, and I've tried to show it to people, and nobody likes it. And I'm just like, I need to do an episode on that. <laughs> but I, I, you know, again, I I appreciate you for for bringing this this movie to my attention and and more more than that I appreciate the explanation because I do feel like I needed that um after watching it but um like I said I, I liked all the the aspects of it yeah you know I um, love noir obviously we know that and I like mysteries and you know so I, I like that about it yeah I mean I feel like that's that's what I have to say about this movie I mean I really do love it it's weird and it's weird in all the it's weird in all the right ways for me. Mm -hmm. it, it it's like Birdman in that when you want to splice a bunch of genres together, you splice the right genres together, and then you've got me. Like mm -hmm. when Birdman was like backstage theater drama plus superhero Gosh, plus weird jazz. <laughs> I so love good. that movie. And then you add like weird jazz soundtrack, and it's like I love jazz. I was in theater. I love superhero movies. Oh my God, this movie was perfect for me. It, yeah. it's, this, it's the same way we're singing detective. It's like, if you're going to do these weird avant-garde kind of independent movies, they're really sort of 50, 50 for me, but you put the right ingredients into it and you've pretty much sold me, you know, like this movie, like I said, it's psychological drama plus film noir plus musical. Bam. I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other movie that I think of, I don't know, it, it's not this surreal, but I guess it kind of is. Do you like All That Jazz? I have actually never seen All That Jazz, o only because I'm not a huge Fosse guy. Uh -huh. it, I, it's almost sacrilegious as a musical theater nerd to say, <laughs> I don't dig Fosse. Um, but I have been meaning to see it because that's the because rob schneider plays fossey in the movie right yeah and it's like the way i describe that movie is like if aronofsky wrote a musical <laughs> okay like one okay. of the one of my favorite scenes is uh the song i think i'm gonna die and he's just singing about how he, he's gonna die anyway oh. it, it's really good it's good okay. i like it i feel like I'll, you would I'll, like I'll... it just knowing you <laughs> yeah Knowing your weird taste, you probably like this movie. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I said it. I like it. <laughs> I, 
I, I, I wasn't going to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I loved it when I saw it. And I was like, how come no one talks about this? But I'm like, probably because it's really dark. <laughs> but it's good. Yeah. Okay. I will check it out. Yeah. Well, um, you want to, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for the questions. Okay. Okay. Here we go. I wanted to make sure you got, you got everything you wanted to say. I got everything off okay. my I'm, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so what keeps you coming back to this movie? Why do you think you've seen it so many times? Because I do feel like that every time I watch it, I find something else about the, and those are the movies I love. The yeah. movies that after 15 years, I still see something new whenever I watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, I mean, just from you explaining it back to me, I you touched on a lot of things I did not pick up on, so I, I definitely see that. Yeah, I, I think I think that's it. You know, it's a great RDJ performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, pre- he's great in it. He's great in it. It's pre, it's you know, it's pre Iron Man. Mm-hmm. So so before he really got his star back, mm-hmm. you know, in two thousand eight with Iron Man, it's like it, it's got all these actors that I love, and it's a movie that you, it it. It almost demands that you watch it multiple times because that's the only way you're going to peel back all the layers. How do you pitch this movie to someone that hasn't seen it? Because you didn't give me a lot of information. I didn't want to. I feel like it's one of those movies that you want to give them. You want to give them as little as possible. Yeah. It's a movie you need to experience because I feel like no matter what I say about this movie, I'm misleading you. I'm either giving you. I'm either giving you too much information or uh, I think that's the problem. How do you sell this movie? And I really feel like you just sell, you almost just sell it on like the description that you read at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. Have a, you have one, you got Robert Downey Jr. As a writer who is stuck in a hospital bed and the only way he can deal with it is to, escape into the world of one of his de- you know noir detective novels yeah but it's also a musical in a weird sort of way mm-hmm. and so it's it's like you kind of it you sell it by telling the ingredients and then just warn them it's weird right. and <laughs> either you're gonna and either you're gonna like it or not because like i said this is the first time that i think i've done a movie on this podcast where it's like I'm not going to sell this one too hard because I know it's not for everybody. So I don't mm-hmm. want to oversell it, but I also don't want to push it on someone who's not going to appreciate it. Yeah. It, and so I I don't try that hard with this movie. I really don't. It's like I, I might just loft it up there and – I'll let you take it from here, which I think this is an excellent point time to point out. If you want to check it out and if you have Amazon Prime, it is free streaming on Prime right now. Yeah, I was I was so happy that you didn't have to pay to watch the movie because <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Lisa's going to feel I so, only had one bad experience with that. And that was Drop Dead Gorgeous. I okay. love that movie, but it's like completely out of print. Oh, oh, man. Well, I would say that, like, if any, I mean, hopefully, hopefully someone will try to watch it. I, I almost feel like I need to, like, say, like, post on the Facebook group, it's on Prime before you listen to this podcast and we ruin everything about the movie. <laughs> but, no, I, uh, I think a lot of people would. I mean, just based on the fact that it's Robert Downey Jr. alone and, like, everybody oh, in our group, I mean, you know, they like the Marvel movies, too, so. 
Yeah. So, but yeah, it, it's weird. It's one where like I'll sell it by saying it's Robert Downey Jr. with an incredible cast about a writer who escapes into the world of his own books to deal with his trauma mm-hmm. and just leave it there because anything else I feel like would do the movie a disservice by telling someone something else. Yeah, I, I guess I would say be open minded and see the movie as like you know, dark and experimental and, um, yeah, and that, you know, so that they, I guess maybe prepare them, like you said, to walk into something different or strange. Um, and I probably would be like choosy in who I suggest it to, because like you said, it's not for everyone. I think I need to learn your skill of not overselling (laughs) because I have tried to force so many movies on people and I feel like they don't appreciate it (laughs) sometimes. I only recommend this movie to people that I'm like, you're the right kind of, you're my kind of weird. You would, <laughs> you would get this movie. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much, Scott, for coming back on here. Oh, I thank appreciate you so much every for time. having me again. Yeah, I, I of course. Anytime. I, I feel like it's a love fest every time I come on here. But I really do, <laughs> oh, I you're really so love, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah. really do love your show. I, oh, I really do. That. And so uh, it's why, it's why I love like, can you get me in the schedule? Can you get me <laughs> on the schedule? Anytime, man. Anytime. I, I feel like I'm a junkie trying to get a fix. It's like, can I get on the <laughs> I show think it's again? like, I mean, I, I've told Nick before, I feel, I feel like the show's almost like therapy, you know, because it's like, there's something really personal about when you really love a movie and you get to just like gush about it. And it's like how it connects to you, why it means so much to you, and somebody listening to you and hearing you out. Because I think that can be tough, especially about movies like this that are a little bit more obscure. Um, when you start going on and on and someone's eyes glaze over, that's so disappointing. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> to have uh, an, a space, a safe space to do that, you know, I think that's why people want to do it so bad. And I relate to that 100% growing up, you know, a film junkie. So I appreciate it. And I want to hear your take on movies. I want to hear how you feel about it. So I appreciate it. Um, Scott, where can people find you? Oh, as always, uh, if you want to reach out to me on social media and go, what the heck were you thinking? <laughs> you can, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Scott DC 27. I was about to mention the sh- my show first. <laughs> <It's a laughs> you can habit. mention your show as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so at Scott DC 27 for me personally. And as always, as Lisa is so wonderful about always mentioning, I am one half of the Suicide Squad cast. Uh, we, which you can find us wherever podcasts can be found, wherever you're mm-hmm. listening to this show, you can probably find my show. And, yeah. um, we do DC movie news and all kinds of DC comics content. And you can find us on Twitter at suicide Squadcast. We're on Facebook as well. The suicide Squadcast network, mm-hmm. you know, all the places that podcasts can be found. You can find our show if you are so inclined, but honestly, you probably have already found my show at this point. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of crossover. <laughs> there's a lot of crossover. Yeah, and I think you know that speaks to people that are that are big DC fans too, because they're they're looking for that positivity, and so we're kind of both on the same page on that one. All right, well, um, thanks so much, Scott, and we will see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. Uh, It's always a good time having Scott on the podcast, and I hope you guys enjoyed hearing about a more obscure but still well-loved film. 
by the way, we are getting close to our one-year anniversary of the I Love That Movie podcast. And I want to do some fun stuff for the anniversary. I'll keep you guys posted as we get closer. If you have any suggestions on what you think we should do to celebrate, please send that my way. Uh, I want you guys to know that we're also having a meetup at the Dallas Intercontinental Hotel during AllCon on March 15th. Now, the meetup starts at 8 o'clock in the lobby bar. Uh, It's just a chance to meet with some of the guests that have been on the show and grab a beer and just chat about movies in person. Uh, This is not an official convention event. It's just a meetup. So very laid back, fun times. Come say hi. Uh, See you guys then. Um, If you guys have any feedback on this episode or any others, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter under AYA Lisa Cosplay, on Instagram at AYA and as Nancy AMI Lisa, or in our closed Facebook group, I Love That Movie. The group is private, but if you send me a request, I'll add you. It's a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films, judgment free. Uh, My only rule is keep it positive. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. If you leave a positive review on iTunes, you will be entered to win a $20 gift card to a movie theater chain of your choice. Right now we're at 18 reviews, guys. So uh, once I get to 30, I'm going to draw a name, so leave one today. Uh, Thanks so much, and I look forward to hearing from you. 